We're heading into the back stretch of summer with cooler weather right around the corner. But what is really cool is the Hartman Company's Golden Age products. The Hartman Company's Golden Age products. That's right, friend, the Hartman Company's Golden Age products. If you go to thehartmancompany.com right now, you can have the coolest look of any cat prowling the street this fall. But what is the Hartman Company's Golden Age products? Why, I thought you'd never ask, friend. They make products the way they were meant to be made, with a classic look. Not only are they made right here in the U.S. of A., they are made with top-notch ingredients. Why, check out this all-natural hair cream made from shea butter, honey, coconut oil, with a fragrance that brings the dames closer, not farther from you. Is that all they've got? Not at all. They have hair tonic, shaving soap, and even an aftershave lotion. If you want an old-fashioned pomade instead of a hair cream, then fret not, because they've teamed up with One Round Jack to bring you one. They have box sets, so you can hook your friends and family up during the coming holidays. But that's not all. The Hartman Company has such an awesome classic logo, you can now get hoodies, baseball, and t-shirts. I'm wearing my Public Enemy Number 1 shirt as we speak. So, go to thehartmancompany.com right now and put in the code word GANGSTER and garner an extra 10% off your purchase. Again, that's thehartmancompany.com with two N's, as in, you're a Nancy boy if you don't get these products. Warning, the show is intended for mature audiences. Parental discretion is advised. Скину я меня пушинкой, ураган сметет с ладони, и в санях меня галопом повлекут, по снегу утром выношат Welcome to the History of Organized Crime. I'm your host, Michael Vista. This episode, O Bratva, Where Art Thou? In September of 1989, on a flight to Miami, Florida, after an unofficial official visit to the Johnson Space Center in Houston, a horrified Boris Yeltsin merely held his head in his hands. His eyes were red-rimmed from tears and his cheeks covered with their dampness. His assistants were dumbstruck, too, as much by the visit as by their boss's composure. Yeltsin had grown up and fought in the Soviet system for years. He worked feverishly to find cures to fix that broken within that system, often meeting strong resistance. He was a populist rebel within the Soviet government, but he was not much to be feared and, really, he wasn't a military man. The Soviets knew they had one of the world's preeminent militaries and was so vast that it had held off two of the worst military invasions in the last 200 years, one by Napoleon Bonaparte, the other by Adolf Hitler. In their mind's eye, they had no real worries about Yeltsin, which is what happens when one lives in a bubble. The party leaders lived well, even in the worst of times. They had special homes built just for their private use, because they might need a break from the pressures they felt. They were so busy doing the work of the people that their food was segregated from that of the masses before distribution, lest they and their staffs go hungry whilst they worked. They were chauffeured in western automobiles instead of taking the rail cars or buses of the urban centers, because if they had a meeting, it was of the utmost importance for the people to get their fair share. 
They rarely, if ever, saw the lines of people hoping bread would be available, or semi-fresh fruit was waiting. Or if they were getting clothes, shoes, or anything, they had to wait in long lines and secretly pray something was there to be had. Boris Yeltsin was one of these. He had waited in lines with the people, which added to his popularity among them, particularly in the Muscovite citizenry. He had seen the meager wares available to them and the length they had to go through to acquire them. Because of his insight into the system, he knew that the Soviet Union was only a mild crop shortage away from borderline famine and would secretly be begging the West to sell them rice and grain at low prices and, hey bro, can we keep this to ourselves? Yeltsin's visit to NASA's headquarters was really cool for him, but he was not overly impressed. Sure, they had a space shuttle program, but they had been dealt a severe blow by the Challenger explosion recently. Plus, the Soviet Union was about to launch their own version of the space shuttle, called the Buran. They had shown him their mock-up of a space station, which was going to be a joint venture with multiple nations. That looked cool, but hadn't the Soviet Union had a long-term space station called Mir already? He was trying to piece together what America was doing so differently that he and his people were unable to flex their economic muscle. What rocked Boris Yeltsin to his core was he had his escorts stop by a mid-sized grocery store called Randall's. He wanted to see how Americans got their food, how long the lines were, and what was available to them on a daily basis. I am fairly sure his American attendants were like, uh, sure. Dude, when do you see a grocery store pull in? And no, I don't know why we're going to a grocery store. Unless you really like to cook, grocery shopping in America, for the most part, is an unremarkable task. Inside was everything. Fresh meats packaged for sale with everything from beef, pork, chicken, lamb, and turkeys. Fresh fruits and vegetables were there for the taking. Just come and get it. There is a series of photos available on the World Wide Web showing a poor Boris Yeltsin's hands held up in the frozen food dessert area in disbelief. In the background, there are bicycles for sale, in case your kids want a bike. On that trip to Miami, Yeltsin knew that communism was dead. Once he saw what mere average Americans had access to every day of the week versus his poor populace, he was heartbroken, knowing that a country with hundreds of millions of people were waiting in line for food that wasn't there. Nothing! Nothing! I got absolutely nothing for sale! But communism, and its bastard half-brother socialism, didn't start out with a whimper, but an inebriated roar under the guise of a fair, equal, and communal system for all. Though they, too, would find out the difficulties of governing such a huge landmass with a spread-out population, multiple ethnic groups, with varying customs, and a land suppressed by its locale. So, before we jump into the Russian Revolution of October 1917, it was actually in November, but Russia was still using the outdated Julian calendar. In fact, Russia's geography and weird population mashup kept them just behind the rest of Europe in almost every way, too. So as we move forward, we need to discuss Russia's unique geography and population issues, which will lead us to a quick history of the governance through the Tsars. And make no mistake, Russia has massive geographical and populist issues to deal with even today, so keep that in mind. What constitutes Russia in landmass is well over 4 billion acres compared to the United States and China, who could both fit in Russia together. 
put Russia's size into context, the famed Orient Express from Paris to Istanbul was on average an 80-hour journey through some of the most beautiful scenic mountains in the world. That means long inclines, declines, and slow going through the tunnels. Going mostly over flat, boring Russia, the Trans-Siberian Rail from Moscow to Vladivostok is 144 hours. That's a distance of over 5,500 miles, or 9,000 kilometers, versus the mere 1,500 miles of the Orient Express. And those are passenger trains, not even the longest trains in the world, which also happen to be in Russia. Russian geography has also been hampered by inhospitable weather. Brutal is the word that comes to mind in terms of its cold climate. As we explained back in Episode 2, The Big Rotten Apple Part 1, Giovanni di Verrazzano was supposed to find passage over Russia to the Orient on behalf of the French monarch, King Francis I. It was so stacked with ice it was impossible for his ship to enter that portion of the Arctic Ocean, so he went the opposite direction and explored all along the eastern coast of America. There is a video on YouTube of a young man in Siberia who, from his apartment, has a large pot of steamy, boiling water that he takes from the heat of the stove out onto his balcony on the upper floor and hurls it over the ledge. Before it reaches the ground, it is turned to ice crystals. One French soldier's account of the retreat from Russia in Napoleon's failed campaign talked of it being so cold on the ground that ice crystals merely floated in the air. That happens when the ice crystals are warmer than the ground due to the laws of thermodynamics where heat rises and cold descends. Hence, the ice was too warm for the ground. This kind of weather makes for short, sporadic growing seasons in a country with massive acreage, rich with minerals that can't be used to their best ability, which means famine when the winter comes early or stays too late. In addition, when people think of the Russian people, they see Maria Sharapova, Mikhail Baryshnikov, or 22-year-old Anna from St. Petersburg, who is just dying to visit you in Mississippi, or Utah, or Saskatchewan. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan beauties of Scandinavian descent. Well, how did they get that way? Vikings. Yes, the most trusted civilized people in antiquity would off go down the great rivers to their east and its many tributaries for raids and forced intercourse with unwilling ladies. However, Russia also incorporates a massive populace of the descendants of the great Mongolian Empire under one of history's most brutal savages, Genghis Khan. They have populated the Central and Eastern Asian expanse for over 30,000 years. It was their cousins who came over a land bridge and settled in what we know now as the Americas. Their offspring became known as American Indians, which has already been proven through DNA testing. To add to it, Western Russia also garners under its flag many people of Armenian-Turkish descent as well. We'll skip the genocide of Armenia by the Turks this go-around. So Russia has been stagnated by necessities which came so much easier to their even more Western European cousins, who had access to deep, warm-watered ports, better weather for growing crops, herding animals, or traveling for longer ventures. This creates much more massive population centers where people gather to find employment or sell their wares. When the tribal peoples of Western Russia had garnered a few larger towns and small cities, they gathered from time to time to work out any differences. These headmen and their descendants became a ruling class known as boyars 
for these icy city-states. One of the more powerful of them was a Muscovite prince named Ivan Vasilievich IV, Ivan the Terrible. Skipping the ascension of his family, let's just say by 1547, Ivan controlled enough land and cities to name himself Tsar of Rus. Tsar is their variation on Caesar. Rus is a collective of provinces. Though the Muscovite claim languished, with treachery and false princes being named Tsar, and lastly as a Grand Duchy under Vladislav IV of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, it was Michael I of the House of Romanov that helped cement the Tsar status, through the support of the boyars who were noblemen under them, but garnered power through the Tsar establishment. The throne, as it was, had two leaders of important note until we finished with the last. Peter the Great, who worked extraordinarily hard to not only expand Russian claims, but to do so in a way as to advance his people as a whole. It was his vision to garner a deep-water navy, and therefore gather more prestige and trade with the rest of the world. He also modernized the Russian military, as well as the logistic necessities of the land through roads and river ports. Catherine the Great was a usurper of the crown, and known to enjoy many men in her lifetime. Regardless, she wisely led the Russian Empire through intelligent delegation of authority, as well as opened the first university for higher education for women in Europe. Her era is considered the golden age of Russian history, though her political enemies claim she died in the embrace of an equine lover, because... A horse is a horse, of course, of course. It wasn't true, but it does tell you something of her sexual escapades while she did possess the throne. Eventually, the throne ended up in the hands of Nicholas II in 1894. He inherited a country still struggling to emerge, in a world where to his west, Europe and America were still advancing in every conceivable way. He had a rising, aggressive Japan in the east, fighting an awakening China over the Korean Peninsula. Plus, he had a fragmenting Ottoman Empire with destabilized regimes to his south. To make matters worse, there was a large contingent of social reformers who had been challenging every move by the Tsarist government for over 20 years, with one of their kind assassinating his grandfather, Alexander II, who was more affable to their cause than the Tsar they got in the replacement, being his son, Alexander III. His struggles to gain concordance within the empire never garnered enough traction, plus a lost war with the Japanese over Manchuria in 1904 led directly to the brutal suppression of liberal thinkers in St. Petersburg, who had railed against the government in the name of social justice, equality, and fairness on behalf of the labor force. Nicholas did agree to work with the Dumas, who are elected officials within the empire, to find a balance and correct this potentially powerful nation. And Nicholas had personal problems, too. His wife, Alexandra, was not Russian and was distrusted by the Russian nobility and, to a certain extent, the general populace. Plus, she was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria of England. She, like her sister and cousins, had passed on the defective gene of hemophilia to their male children, which, for Alexandra, was her fifth and final child. She was luckier than her cousin Victoria, who had become Queen of Spain. Her husband didn't openly blame her for their son's affliction, as Alfonso XIII of Spain did to his wife. In fact, Nicholas was supportive of his wife and very caring for his son. You know, 
you would think at some point Nicholas would get to say, It's good to be the king. Unfortunately, his wife, Zarina Alexandra, had lived with this her whole life and was terrified for her only male child. Her brother and a favorite uncle had both been killed due to the disease, and usually the family found out for sure if a son was afflicted during the circumcision of the newborn. When they discovered this aspect in their son Alexia, she became overprotective and was seemingly always hovering over him to the point of hysteria. This eventually led to one of the destabilizing features of the Russian Empire from the nobility point of view, and that is Grigory Rasputin. Rasputin was considered by some a man sent by God, a prophet, and extremely charismatic. By his enemies, he was a mere charlatan, a drunkard, and a lecherous swine, who used his alleged religious position to garner the maidenhood of many young girls and to warm the bed of married ones. Rasputin had claimed the trust of the Tsarina for the care of her son, and more from actual luck and medical science, the boy did recover, for which Rasputin, in the name of God, took credit for the healing of the heir to the Russian Empire. This caused much distrust by the nobility, and it was used as chum to bait the ignorant on the side of the social reformers touting the awesomeness of Marxism, or communism, or whichever aspect of the socio-political revolutionaries fell within this broad sphere of socialism. Coupled with the destabilizing interior of the Russian imperial government was the onset of World War I. In his defense, Nicholas II worked hard to keep the war from happening at all. However, the last hurrah of the nobility of Europe took place, which also pitted family members against one another. King George V of England was cousin to not only Nicholas II, but Wilhelm II, Emperor of Germany and King of Prussia. There is a photo of the cousins Nicholas and Wilhelm wearing each other's military uniforms. Nicholas in the Prussian imperial dress and Wilhelm in the Russian hussar. The leadership of the Russian army, including Tsar Nicholas II, failed miserably. They were short of supplies, had poorly trained conscripted troops, and the geography on the Eastern Front was nothing but an obstacle for them. Furthering the issue for the Tsar was that the Battle of Tannenberg, his best and most loyal officers died when the Russian offensive was wiped out. All told, Russia lost over 3 million men in total effort and ended up withdrawing from the war altogether. While away at war, a group of noblemen poisoned and shot multiple times Grigory Rasputin. So afraid of him surviving, they left nothing to chance. In addition, harsh winters and the war led to a major rise in inflation across the country, which fed the hungry beast at the door of the Romanovs. Strikes and violent political uprisings started to take place across the country. By February of 1917, it was the middle class and the industrialists who subverted the will of the government. A relatively peaceful revolution that saw the abdication of the throne by Nicholas II, who named his brother Michael his successor and Grand Duke. When offered the Tsardom, Michael said, No. Okay? Fuck no. One of the socialist leaders, who had been in exile since 1909 for his efforts at rebellion, returned to take a stand against the fallen Tsar's government, and more importantly, the provisional government. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known to the West as Vladimir Lenin, had been an educator in his early years, 
but had fallen in with radicals early on. Where the Menshevik portion of the socialist government wanted a peaceful transition to power, Lenin implored the much more extremist Bolsheviks to a bloody course of action. So feared was Lenin that even the Bolshevik supporters who wanted a more peaceful transition, such as Alexander Bogdanov, shrank in his shadow. Lenin fought with his committee members, arguing for a bloody coup of any supporters who weren't with the proletariat, the labor force, meaning the middle class, entrepreneurs, and nobility. His pleas fell on deaf ears, and he was suddenly a wanted man again. Thus, he fled back to Finland, where he had pro-Bolshevik contacts willing to keep him safe. As the revolution progressed and Bolsheviks garnered more support, he returned and again argued for a violent insurrection, with his point being that the whole of Europe was about to rise up in a strong socialist movement which would benefit the utopian goals of communal thinking. This time he won, and by October of 1917, they had stormed the Winter Palace for a rather bloodless coup, with few people of importance there. The Tsar and his family had already been moved by the provisional government to keep them safe from radicals. But what did the Bolsheviks find at the Winter Palace? Art? Jewels? Furniture? Yes, but more importantly, they found the wine cellar. The Bolsheviks got so drunk, it took two days before they could get reorganized and start following through on their promises. The forces of Bolshevism weren't without opposition either. The Russian Revolution would take years to come to an end, with the red forces of communism fighting the white forces which were made up of disenfranchised nobility, industrialist centrists who feared the vicious motives and actions of the reds, and the disenfranchised socialists who too feared the vile rhetoric of Lenin and his people. The Bolsheviks had gotten to the royal family, who had been expecting to be found a home in exile, but were waiting on word of where that would be. Regardless, the Soviet Council, under orders from Lenin, had them move to a less well-known locale, Yekintraburg, in the Ural Mountains, where they were kept under guard. Fearing a plot by the whites, or at least that was the excuse used, the guards of the royal family woke them in the early hours of July 17, 1918, and led them into a small sub-basement. The reason they were told was because a force of anti-government army was closing in and they didn't want them to get hurt by an errant artillery shell. Nicholas and Alexander had kept their kids' spirits up and knew they'd eventually be sent into exile since they were related to so many of Europe's aristocracy. As the family of seven and their servants who had vowed to stay with them were waiting in the basement, a squad of Bolshevik guards entered the room with pistols and bayonets and began shooting and stabbing everyone. A few of the royal family actually survived many of the initial shots due to the jewels they had kept sewn in the linings of their clothes, but the plan was to make sure no one was left alive, and they weren't. Nicholas, his wife, four daughters, 13-year-old son, the family doctor, and three servants were murdered in cold blood. Now, before we move on, it must be stated that the royal family was extremely wealthy and had much in the way of precious metals and jewels from around the world. I have heard people argue that they should have used this wealth in a manner to help their people instead of hoarding it. That all sounds good, but it's the same thing as printing more money in a broken economy. It devalues the wealth. Let me put it another way. 
If De Beers, the famous diamond company, released a mere 3% of the diamonds they actually have in their vaults, the diamond market would crumble and would be worthless. So slow down on your assessment of what they should have done versus the reality of what could be done with that vast fortune. Lenin and his Bolshevik forces continued putting Russia back together in a most inept and cruel way. They arrested wealthy landowners, industrial leaders, and others of success in an effort to redistribute items needed for their supporters and to uphold the government. This new government needed many things to support their poor, downtrodden brothers in arms. They needed land to farm, timber to build houses, petroleum and coal to run machines. We haven't got the time to get into the many failings of the communist thinking under the watchful eye of Lenin and his followers. Let's just say their plan was an unmitigated failure from beginning to end. The problem they had was there was no one to handle the work that needs to be done. Thanks to Lenin, they had rounded up tens of thousands of what were considered dissidents and simply forced them to do the work in dreary labor camps throughout the land, which leads us to the world of prison gangs. Before the Bolsheviks took over, criminals in the Russian Empire were tattooed on their faces, branding them for their social transgressions. Similar to soldiers being branded a coward or Hester Preen being forced to wear a scarlet A. With the ascension of the communists and their dictatorial leadership under Lenin, then Stalin, they had created a slave labor market out of these dissidents. Plus, with every failing of the government, people will commit crimes such as stealing food from a farm or a storehouse to feed themselves and their starving families, or nick some oil to heat the house so they wouldn't freeze to death. So there were always new workers to replace the many dying ones under the Soviet's watch. It is here that these tattoos took on a whole new meaning, particularly with thieves who refused to die, just because some bloody-minded tyrants didn't care if their plans were a failure. The strong ones, who had bucked the system, including orders from guards or wardens, garnered a new form of respect within these walls and fences of these labor camps. Labor camps that a future leader of Germany found such a wonderful idea. For those bucking the system came a prestige within these man-made institutions of slavery. To show their mettle to those within the system, they started creating a whole new system of laws with which they would live in called Thieves' Law. Evor is a thief, and Zakone is the law. The world of the thieves and law. Even if outside the prison wall, known as gulags, those same rules still applied. Within these thieves' laws, certain tattoos would be authorized by the Vordeve Zakone, the most prominent ones being stars on the chest and on the knees. The ones on the chest meant they would comply with no law but thieves' law, and the ones on the knees meant they would kneel to no one. Eyes upon their upper torso meant they were aware and not to be trifled with. Eyes in the buttocks or lower back meant they were to be used as sexual devices and given no respect within the thieves' world, though these became more prominent later on. If anyone has ever watched David Cronenberg's fine film Eastern Promises, they go into some detail about this, and I assure you it is one of the finest gangster films available, easily in my top 20. The thieves' world is going to become one of the most important after-effects of communism. For much like North Korea and Venezuela today, the heavy-handed government and their poor perspective of how economics, people, and governments are, is going to create something they themselves are in complete denial about for the most part, particularly those with high ideals, 
living a lavish lifestyle while the actual everyday Russians are hoping something good will happen. It is going to create a black market. Our opening and closing tune is an example of that. Vladimir Vysotsky was an actor and, more importantly, a musician. His music was considered against the good order of the Soviet Union, since it panned politicians, made sexual references, and all sorts of things which go against the good order of the government. Hence his fame within that realm should not exist, because that was very anti-party platform to be too famous or too important. Yet, when he died at the age of 42 from a cocktail mixture of drugs illegally supplied from profits made at underground nightclubs, he merely got a small obituary writing in the Moscow paper to inform people who were going to see his play that they could get a refund. The Politburo freaked out when over 100,000 people lined the streets of Moscow to pay their respects to a man whose voice and songs touched them so very much. Literally, those in power had no idea what was going on. Vysotsky was very familiar with the thieves' world because his life and soul worked through an illegal music underground, which could only be supported on that black market. A black market which sold illegally recorded sets of his music and copied them for others to purchase, which also sold drugs to Vysotsky and the rest of the populace. This suppression of everyday people led to the Vorevay Zakone, to what is today one of the wealthiest organized crime organizations in the world, known as the Bratva, the Brotherhood. In our next episode, we are entering Prohibition. Cars, speakeasies, lights, dancing, movies, and illegal hooch everywhere, with a brand new president who doesn't really care for the law. Don't forget to go to thehartmancompany.com and put in the code word GANGSTER for your 10% off. You can find us at SoundCloud or on iTunes. Please leave us a review. You can contact us on Facebook at The History of Organized Crime or write to us directly at michaelvista1970 at yahoo.com. As we exit this episode, it will be from the raw, emotional voice of Vladimir Vysotsky, whose artistry was tampered by a repressive government. And remember, organized crime is only a crime because the government hates competition. Вдоль обрыва, понад пропастью, по самому, по краю, я коней своих нагайкаю, стигаю, погоняю, что-то воздуху мне мало, ветер пью, туман глотаю. Чую с гибельным восторгом Пропадаю, пропадаю Чуть помедленнее кони Чуть помедленнее